Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. Hello and welcome to the Compliance Files podcast of the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. I'm Cathy Jacobs, President of the ACOI, and it is a great pleasure for me to host this podcast. All aspects of our lives have been turned upside down by the pandemic, our home and family life, work and social lives. But how has this disruption and change exacerbated, added to, and in general, changed the risk landscape of the businesses we work in? I am delighted to welcome as my guest today, Charles Minatella, who leads Refinitiv's customer and third-party risk intelligence business and is responsible for the design and adoption of solutions supporting associated risk identification and compliance programs. Charles has a deep knowledge of legal and compliance processes aimed at understanding the underlying risk of customer and business relationships. Prior to his current role, he led client and industry adoption efforts for Refinitiv's KYC as a service at the time, the industry's largest KYC utility. Before that, he founded the financial markets documentation practice for Pangea 3, now part of EY, one of the first and largest alternative legal services firms. Charles frequently speaks on topics related to reg tech, innovation, and legal and compliance process optimization. Charles is here to discuss with me today Refinitiv's report, which has been recently published into the changing risk landscape. Welcome to the Compliance Files podcast, Charles. And thanks for talking to us today. Hi, Kathy. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Good. Okay, Charles, can you just describe for our listeners the background to this research and, and your report? Sure. So each year we conduct independent surveys to look at different aspects of customer and third-party risk. In the past, we've looked at the true cost of financial crime and its impact on companies and society. More recently, we looked at how innovation in data and technology can help identify and disrupt criminal activity. Last year, we did a report on the hidden risks in supplier, distributor, and partnership relationships, which was was really important because of COVID-19. And this year, we're taking that a step further and looking at the wider set of customer and third-party risks that have been presented because of the the pandemic and the resulting time thereafter and looking at technology and how that uh, can help reshape our approach. We'll talk a bit more about uh, some of the uh, the interesting highlights of the report, but uh, certainly some fascinating insights we were able to uncover. And exactly what point in the pandemic was research carried out, Charles? So we conducted the research in March of 2021, which was roughly a year after the world went into lockdown. So it was a good reflection point. Obviously, since, since that point, there's been over 5 million deaths globally. We're in the process now globally of reopening, which is is in different phases in different countries. I think uh, across the listenership, there's probably people that are largely back in the office and there are those that are still working from home. Their daily work has gone back to largely normal and those that are still kind of operating in a virtual environment. And so we continue to see that uh, playing out in the way that companies are, are continue to respond. But ultimately, I think the biggest issue that we see, uh, we continue to see, is uh, the fracturing of supply chains and the challenges that we're having getting back to normal, which is driven by a number of different issues, geopolitical, labor, energy related, 
Uh, there's just a number of different factors that are driving that that continued supply chain disruption. So we'll, we learned a lot about how companies had responded to that and are continuing to to respond. Yes, Charles. I think we're in a in a strange hiatus here in Ireland where we're trying to get back, but you know the the, the threats are, are are still there and still prevalent. So it, it's another just weird phase in the pandemic. How was the research carried out? And who was surveyed and how was your report collated? So we conducted the research online using an independent consulting firm. Uh, we interviewed about just under 3,000 managers in large organizations who are either knowledgeable or involved in regulatory compliance. It sort of was broken down across three different levels, 20% C-suite, just under 40% senior management, just over 41% middle management. So a nice distribution of seniority and leadership within firms. And we, we conducted this research across 30 countries. So it was quite robust in its, in its view, which I think is, is uh, you'll see in the results. That, that is quite expansive in terms of where companies are in, in this process. Yes, that is a really big survey, actually. It's a, bit, it's a big population. And can you take us through the headline findings of the report first before we delve into some of the detail? Sure. Some really interesting headlines that came out of the report. So one that is not so surprising is that 65% of respondents agree that the pandemic forced them to take shortcuts in their KYC and due diligence checks. And if you think about some of the pressures that financial institutions had, especially when it came to their customers who were in you know, near catastrophic situations in a lot of instances where you know, perhaps they had a relationship and what was called for was under normal circumstances would require maybe a full onboarding or review of the, the customer and the, and the account in order to, to make whatever they wanted to happen, whether it was opening a new account, a transaction, whatever it was, a financing, et cetera, et cetera. But given their relationship, they decided to, to perhaps uh, have an exception. Similarly, in the, in the third-party risk space, uh, we knew that we know that a lot of companies have ha- had to make significant changes to their supply chain in order to survive. We worked very closely with customers that were onboarding suppliers at a rapid rate because they needed to be able to get material or, or whatever it might be in order to make critical items like PPE, testing, et cetera, et cetera. So the checks may not have been as robust as they would be in normal times. Similar for distribution, we found that a lot of companies needed to find new partners to distribute their products uh, into markets because companies went out of business or they were locked down or, or, or whatever it might be. And so it was clear that in that during that time that there were, you know, we could call them shortcuts, but ultimately we found that companies were, were making risk-based exceptions and then subsequently going back and reviewing, but certainly we're taking some risk in the short term. We found that 73% of respondents were under extreme pressure to increase revenue under COVID-19, which I think is interesting. You know, I would think that their focus might be around just keeping afloat rather than actually driving revenue increase. So I, that's an interesting perspective that, that came out of this. 71% of respondents said that cybercrime became more difficult to contain during the uh, COVID-19 uh, because of remote working practices and the resulting investment in tech infrastructure that took place. It was about 11 years of tech infrastructure that took place in three months. So there were a lot of instances where companies may not have had as as much controls around their technology infrastructure that they could have just because of the the rapid adoption that took place. 
It's really interesting because there was an article in the Financial Times earlier this year that talked a little bit about cybercrime. And it was reported that 30 billion data records were stolen in 2020, which was more than all the data that was stolen in the last 15 years combined. So you can, you can see that uh, it was a, a year that cyber criminals had quite a successful go at finding and, and, and capturing data that they wanted. We also found that 40% of organizations made sanction screening a greater priority, which makes sense, especially as you think about some of the geopolitical tensions that were happening, especially in places like China, but also because of the supply chain disruption, wanting to know that sanctions weren't violated when companies were looking to add new suppliers. So it's quite interesting. A few other key highlights, 86% of respondents agreed that innovative digital technology have helped identify financial crime. I think that that makes a lot of sense given the fact that we pivoted to a a very digital world very quickly in the last 18 months. 91% of those who use technology in KYC and compliance are looking to improve financial crime detection. And that's, you know, I think also a, a symptom of, of what's going what's gone on over the last 18 months. And then 44% of third-party relationships have been through due diligence compared to 2019, where it was 49%, which I think is really interesting. And I think there's a few drivers here. One is what we talked about. Two is that the number of third parties that companies are able to put through due diligence has increased, but their staffing, their processes, et cetera, et cetera, have not scaled to be able to handle the number of third parties they work with today. So the percentage going down is not all that surprising, given what I believe to be a significant underinvestment in the space, given how important third parties are and are becoming to companies uh, globally. So a few other highlights that we could talk about. I think one that stands out is 60% of those who regularly use technology to prevent prevent risk associated with financial crime are far more likely to have better collaboration with law enforcement agencies than those that don't. I think given the the EU AML package, that's going to be a, a critical position to have for companies being able to use technology to be able to work more closely with central agencies. So, you know, all in all, I think those were the major highlights that uh, we uncovered. Thanks, Charles. Yeah, there's some really interesting findings in that. And in particular, that that's quite a startling statistic about uh, the theft of 30 billion records. Although I, I suppose not, not surprising, especially if over 70% said that cybercrime was, was you know, a more challenging risk due to, the, to remote working practices. It just goes to show that fraudsters are always one step ahead, unfortunately. Were there any surprising findings in, in your research? To me, I think the most surprising was the the figure around the third party providers. As I mentioned, it's it's really interesting that the percentage went down given how much third party relationships were you know impacted by the pandemic. As I mentioned, the investment in people and technology and, and maturing the processes to identify risk in third party relationships has largely not been invested in as heavily as what you've seen in the financial services side of things. But, but ultimately, it, it was very clear that the programs in place broke down under pressure. And so given, given that, plus what emerged during the pandemic, which was, especially in the EU, around mandatory uh, due diligence in supply chains, becoming something that will, be, that will require all companies operating in the EU of substance, so large companies, 
high-risk SMEs, global companies that, are, that have operations in the EU, and to conduct due diligence for environmental and human rights-related issues. That sort of surfaced before the pandemic, but I think it's very clear that that's something that needs to happen, given what we, we saw in the results, that, that companies are not in a position to really scale their diligence at the moment. They're not really actively identifying risk across a significant portion of their supply chain. And given the uh, impact that the EU was looking to make on climate change, plus the representations that companies have made as a result of, during the pandemic, but as a result of the companies wanting to build more sustainable futures for themselves and their customers and their stakeholders and shareholders, I would expect to see this number increase significantly over the next couple of years. Yes, it strikes me that outsourcing must have been a huge challenge if you can't physically, if you can't visit the locations, you can't monitor, you know, how do you monitor? How do you inspect? How do you get the comfort that the service is being provided in the way that in accordance with SLAs and your your standards and your culture, et cetera? So I suspect that relying on a on an outsourcing model to a great degree, especially offshoring, the pandemic would certainly have been a huge test for, for that model. So what does your report tell us about compliance risks? So as it relates to compliance risk, it, it's become very clear that they're evolving. You know, what we've seen over the last several years is continued focus around AML from a financial services perspective and anti-bribery and corruption, primarily from a third-party risk perspective, so suppliers, distributors, et cetera. What we're seeing is that because of some of the things we described around the increase in cybercrime, the extreme focus on ESG, and sort of the situation that we've seen around financial situation, not only as a risk in and of itself, but also as an indicator for potential risks that compliance professionals really care about to talk a bit more about, is that it's clear that the compliance risk landscape is is expanding. And so I think in a a few key areas. One is from a cybercrime perspective, we see that that has become the most important risk that third-party risk professionals within companies are looking to understand and mitigate. It, it surpassed uh, bribery and corruption this year in a Deloitte survey uh, on enterprise risk management. That and information security and data privacy, and they're, and they're largely very correlated. So cybercrime becomes, and data privacy risk becomes really important factors for companies. And on the financial services side too, we're beginning to see financial institutions trying to understand the, the sort of cybersecurity posture and infrastructure that their customers have. And you can understand why. If you're, if you're a company that has poor cyber infrastructure, then you sort of open yourself up to you know, data being stolen, which is obviously a GDPR issue. You have the uh, possibility of being a victim of ransomware where that could cripple your operations temporarily or worse permanently. As a financial institution, those are really really credible and important risks to be able to understand, especially if you're involved in a a significant transaction with a company, there's a a loan that you're providing or, or whatever it might be. And so beyond the sort of traditional KYC programs that financial institutions have, trying to identify financial crime oriented risk, we're beginning to see that creep into other areas of risk that need to be understood at the onboarding stage and and certainly through continuous monitoring. ESG becomes a big one because I don't think this one is truly understood by compliance professionals in terms of how they actually are supposed to 
manage ESG risk for companies and financial institutions. So on the, on the company side, we know that there's a significant pressure for companies to be able to demonstrate that they are operating under strong sustainability principles. And historically, that's been decided by information that companies provide on their direct operations. So they'll, they'll provide proof that they have policies and procedures and controls in place to be able to drive a sustainable future. It could be around environmental, could be around human rights, could be around employee rights, et cetera, et cetera. But what we know is that for many companies, over 90% of their ESG exposure is not in their direct operations. It's in their third-party networks. It's their supply chain. You look at companies like Tesla. Tesla has a great reputation around ESG that they produce EVs, right? But Tesla also deals with suppliers that are mining minerals for their batteries. And so it's just as important that Tesla's direct operations, as well as their suppliers, are abiding by the same principles. That's truly an indicator of a company's ESG value. It's their whole ecosystem. And compliance professionals have largely stayed away from this, which I think will change. It has to change, obviously, with the mandatory due diligence requirements that are coming in. But because there's an alignment with that and the non-financial reporting directive, board members are going to have to sign what their disclosures are. And if they don't feel, I'm not sure if the way that uh, organizations are set up today to kind of capture this type of information is really aligned with board members signing that they are, you know, agreeing with what's been provided. And so there's a lot of room there to, to bring more process and procedure and analysis on third parties. Similarly, in the financial institution space, we're seeing a, a significant emphasis on financial institutions either reducing the number of customers they have in areas that are contrary to ESG, like fossil fuel companies, or flat out debanking them, which is happening as well. And so it's really important at the during KYC and on the onboarding stage to be able to identify uh, the complete operational footprint of a company because while you might be working with one part of a company that is not an ESG concern, they could have operations or interests in other areas that are. Just given how much emphasis there is on ESG investment, performance of ESG-related investments versus non-ESG-related investments, and the money that's being piled into these types of strategies, financial institutions really will be burdened with trying to prove whether or not companies belong in these types of categorizations going forward, which will become a compliance issue for them. Yes, Charles, this is a whole new front, the ESG agenda, and it's you know, it can be difficult to define for an organization. And it's because it's cross-functional. I think, you know, everybody will be trying to decide what their role is, not just the compliance officer. And then you have to plug into your, to your colleagues across across your business as to how, you know, how, how you're managing it as a whole and how you're reporting on it and what metrics that you're using, et cetera. So it's something that, you know, we really, the compliance profession anyway, has a lot of work to do just to just, you know, for the, the discovery phase to find out what exactly is our role and how do we link in with our, our colleagues on it. So have you any solutions to these new compliance risks and threats? We do. And I think you, you mentioned it earlier around how companies can actually manage this sort of increase in responsibility. And ultimately, what we sort of are, are seeing is that there's there's investment that's taking place in different types of data and technology assets to be able to help them better understand the risk associated with their customers or their third parties. Because like I said, it's it's expanding the number of customers, the number of third parties 
that financial institutions and companies are working with is growing. The complexity is growing as well. If you think about supply chain disruption, one of the major strategies that companies are employing is sort of de-risking themselves from specific geographies, where whereas they might be single-threaded through China across uh, significant suppliers, they're looking to diversify that and they're going into new markets that they don't necessarily understand all that well. And so being able to use platforms and data to be able to capture the right type of internal and external data to be able to make those assessments is really important. So what we're working with on our with our customers is a few different things. Number one is helping them to establish what their risk-based approach is going to be. We know that in the in the KYC side of things, it's a more mature process. So our financial institution customers have a really good sense of how they apply specific types of diligence based on a number of factors that that might impact the uh, the risk assessment, including the nature of the business of the customer, the jurisdiction they're in, product level due diligence, et cetera, et cetera. And they have a they have an established process to to review that. On the corporate side, it's 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 several years behind that. And so there's there's been a lot of inconsistency in how they evaluate companies, what risks they're most concerned about, how they plan on mitigating those risks, and how they plan on monitoring those risks. So several solutions that we have include workflow platforms to help our customers centrally conduct a a risk assessment process, which would give them the type of information they need to understand the inherent risk that a company has. So just based on their industry and their location, companies will have specific risks, just that, not specific to them. And so being able to use that plus information that internal stakeholders provide, plus information that their party provides, plus external information to be able to centrally review that, implement types of assessment processes and controls to be able to better understand the risk and address and mitigate it. And then also a a central place to be able to review potential changes in the risk profile of the third party based on external information and internal information as well. From a data perspective, Refinitiv is the owner of WorldTrack, which is the premier financial crime uh, database in the industry. And so that's that's a really great baseline product that that companies use for for risk assessment. Uh, but then we also provide more enhanced analysis through our due diligence offering that could take an individual entity or individual and perform a more thorough analysis, looking at a wider set of risks. So not only financial crime oriented risks, which look at you know AML and anti bribery corruption related incidents, but also cyber crime, financial risk, ESG risk, et cetera. So you can get a full sort of 360 perspective on a a third party so that you can be able to manage that more effectively. The purpose is that there's a lot of data. The expectation is that there's going to be more analysis. So what are are things that we can help provide customers to to better manage that, that scaling that's going to take place? And certainly we're investing in AI technologies to be able to um, give them more thematic assessments of customers and third parties. So we're, we're spending quite a bit of time thinking about this problem and developing solutions to help our customers. Thanks, Charles. Yes, some very powerful tools there. And in comparison to last year, which, you know, during the peak of the pandemic, how has customer risk changed and what are the key risk mitigation strategies? Yeah, that's a good question. So we're still determining what this change will look like long-term. There's certainly been a different lens that financial institutions have to apply uh, when they're identifying customer risk. So one of the things that we 
we've seen is an increase in financial mobility, where we've seen money flowing out of emerging economies and into more stability. So there, there's been a significant amount of currency flow that's been happening, and they've been going into, into different types of investments. We've seen further establishment of complex structures to be able to facilitate this. Not directly related, but the recent Pandora papers, I think, shined quite a lid on that. That that continues to happen, even though the Panama papers were many years ago now, we still see that complex ownership structures, shell companies, et cetera, are still being used to manage the flow of money in between uh, different jurisdictions and companies. So I think that's one that will, I think, have a, a new renewed focus, especially given some of the, the global regulations, the, the AMLA here in the US, but also the EU AML package, which is really trying to bring consistency in an application of analysis, but also information sharing, which should help. I think the third mega trend is growth in digital assets, but and, and financial institutions have largely are, are still largely very behind in this. I think it's very, very, very clear that crypto and other digital assets are mainstream now. When you have companies that are, you know, investing money like Tesla into Bitcoin and institutional investors that are wanting exposure to digital assets, as well as you know, ETFs that are being launched that, that follow digital assets. It's, it's quite uh, an interesting space that we're going to have to figure out ways in which to evaluate both the traditional kind of market profile of individuals and entities, but also combining that with their digital asset exposure. It's going to make things way more complex. There's some really great emerging technologies that are looking to be able to create as much exposure to potential threats that exist that are using digital assets, like individuals that are carrying out ransomware attacks, those that are using dark markets to be able to trade trade goods and, and being able to kind of filter that money back into the traditional financial system. It's, it's a very interesting time. I think the last 18 months really accelerated the mainstreaming of digital assets, and we certainly need to figure out ways in which financial institutions can get comfortable around this whole new asset class and, and EU AML package, as well as the AMLA both address that. But I, I don't think financial institutions are globally or at a point where they're prepared to be able to, to integrate digital assets into their assessments. Yes. And we, we've seen, you know, the fifth AML directive and the sixth AML directive try and take or bring digital assets sort of in from the cold and try and, you know, make them respectable through regulation. But it it just doesn't seem to have got the momentum that, you know, that was hoped and, and to try and, you know, bring these into the mainstream. Thanks, Charles. We're coming to the end of our podcast. And just to round off, have you got any key takeaways for our listeners on your report? Sure. So uh, I think this is a very interesting time right now because of all of the things that we talked about today, but really the, the coming together of both significant regulatory change in the financial services and corporate space as it relates to customer and third-party risk, as well as the change the world has, has undergone in the last 18 months. And so because of all of those factors, I think there's a few kind of key takeaways. One is there needs to be an acknowledgement that um, things are going to change from a compliance perspective. There is going to be a greater number of risks that all institutions, financial institutions, corporates, those that operate in between, will have to be able to identify and manage. And the way that we've thought about customer and third-party risk has forever changed. So I would 
recommend to listeners today to really start thinking about ways in which you can begin thinking about how these emerging risks fit into your, your risk assessment processes. Because they're not going away and because regulators are zeroing in on them and obviously in the news every single day, these risks are appearing. So there needs to be an acknowledgement that that's happening. I think the second thing is that data and technology play a really key role in this. As, as I mentioned earlier, there's going to be a significant scaling, which we talked about being you know, part of new risks that need to be understood, but also because there's an expansion in the number of uh, customers and third parties that you know, we're seeing our customers deal with. And so there's a sort of horizontal expansion of risk and a vertical expansion of the number of companies and individuals that need to, to be reviewed and under this premise. And so you're not going to be able to do that without using data and technology. There are not enough people in the world to be able to, that you can employ in any institution, regardless of your size and scope, to be able to do this effectively without data and technology. So if data and technology is not a part of your strategy and your budgeting and your, your strategic thinking, then uh, it will be very difficult to comply going forward. I think the third thing is looking at some of the emerging threats and trying to get ahead of them. So we talked a little bit about digital assets and the mainstream of that, of that. That happened very quickly. And so we need to be able to really start thinking ahead of some of the emerging risks. One of them I mentioned earlier around cybercrime in the KYC process. I think that's a huge one. Being able to understand the propensity of, of risk that a customer has to cyber attacks will be a critical part of your risk assessment process as a, a financial institution compliance professional. So some of these things may not be known today, but I think it's really important to be able to, uh, to pick out those that will impact you in the future and start thinking about them today because, because of they will impact you sooner rather than later. And regulators are actually moving very quickly on these items. So uh, I think agility is probably the main kind of final point on that. Thank you, Charles, for sharing the results of the Refinitiv report. I think this will be a very useful resource for our listeners and members. So we, we recommend that they go to it and they consult it. And thanks to you for listening to the Compliance Files podcast brought to you by the ACOI. I do hope that you find the podcast interesting and useful. We would be very grateful if you would review or rate this podcast. And until the next episode, goodbye. There has been a significant increase in the complexity and volume of regulation underpinning compliance in the area of financial crime prevention. Consequently, practitioners operating in this complex environment have to fulfill their fiduciary responsibilities of ensuring ethical and legal compliance within this regulatory environment while contributing to the wider organisational objectives. The Professional Certificate in Financial Crime Prevention, a 10 ECTS award, at level nine on the National Framework of Qualifications, was designed in consultation with the Garda Bureau of Fraud Investigation and the Suspicious Transactions Unit in the Office of the Revenue Commissioners. It was designed to equip money laundering reporting officers and others who specialize in this area with the specialist skills and competence to address these reputational and compliance risks and is the only accredited qualification at this level. Participants will learn through an applied approach, utilizing both case studies and experienced guest speakers. Whatever your career stage, experience or ambition, the ACY is here to support you. To find out more on our educational offerings and how you can register, 
please visit acoi.ie. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes.